Thank you for listening to this Lunchtime Talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, Fiona Salmon, Director of the Flinders University Art Museum, shares her observations on the exhibition John Marwinjal, I Am the Older Than You, and her experience working with this artist in Maningrida. My name is Fiona Salmon and I'm really uh, privileged to be here with you this afternoon to talk a little bit about my insights working with John Marwinjal. Um, I was, well I am currently um, the director of Flinders University Art Museum um, and am based out at Bedford Park. Some of you might be aware that we have a terrific collection out at Bedford Park which was established as a teaching tool in 19 in the 1960s and has continued to grow to the present day. And uh, I'm responsible for that collection these days. But in a former life, uh, I uh, lived and worked in Maningrida as the arts advisor at Maningrida Arts and Culture, which is where I came into contact with John and his family, and I worked for a number of years. But before I get into the talk, I do want to acknowledge that we're meeting on Ghana land and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. So one of the questions that people often ask me is how did I end up in Maningrida uh, to begin with because it is a long way from Melbourne which is where I had been at university and the reason why I was up north was because I had studied as a linguist. So I studied linguistics at the University of Melbourne and then after doing a master's degree in applied linguistics and had found a boyfriend in the linguistics department as well. Uh, we uh, applied for some jobs through the Catherine Regional Aboriginal Language Centre, based in Catherine, and we went out to work at a community called Bullman, which is south of the escarpment in southern Arnhem Land. So the language spoken at Bullman is Rembaranga. There's also another language called Dalabon, and uh, as field linguists, we were uh, responsible or tasked with working with the local primary school and developing, teacher, uh, developing um, resources, if you like, with the Aboriginal teachers at that school to teach in the local languages. So being a government school, all the curriculum was in English. It was very top-down. I was shocked to see that the kids were being you know, using readers that we had had as kids, Dick and Dora and the Labrador, hardly appropriate. So we had a lot of fun um, working with the um, elders and other people in that community to gather up stories and language that then could be uh, reproduced in resources and then taught at the school. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and it also gave us um, a really, really deep insight into not just the language, but also the cultures um, of that Arnhem Land region. And one of the ways in which um, I suppose we collected language, if you like, was through the lens of art. So there's no better way to generate new vocabulary than looking at an artwork. So if you like, I came to Aboriginal art tangentially uh, through language, but um, very happy to say that I'm still very much in the art today um, and haven't given the language a second thought, although of course the two are inextricably linked. So in the late um, 90s, I, um, so Adam, my partner and I, there were two jobs up, up at Maningrida Arts and Culture in the art centre there. There was the art advisor's role and also the role of the cultural research officer. Now, many of you might have met Murray Gard, 
who has been the um, translator for this project and was also down for the Tanandi weekend. So Murray at the time was running the research office and he was um, ready to have a break for the community having been there for a very long time and went away to do some more um, academic work on the language. So that freed up his role and Andrew Hughes who'd been running the Art Centre was also ready to move on. So there were two roles conveniently and we um, applied for those jobs and were fortunate um, to, to get them. So that meant moving then from Bullman to Manangrida. We drove um, over the escarpment um, to the north in a very um, tiny short wheel based truck which was just overflowing and our Aboriginal friends in Bullman, I just remember when we were trying to shut the door, too much, too much stuff, you know. So there were um, lots of recording gear and all sorts of things that we were carting around the bush with us, had to get in that truck and we had to get back over the escarpment and to the north. So Manangrida is of course um, on, the, on the coast, it's actually on the mouth of the Liverpool River, so quite a different um, environment to be living in. Uh, it's very uh, beautiful, a rich environment, very lush in the wet season. Of course, it's completely cut off from uh, the surrounding areas. Located about 500 kilometres east of Darwin, so very isolated as well. So to drive into Darwin was a very, very long drive um, through the day, dirt roads most of the way. And the flight in and out of the community was really prohibitively expensive. It would have been cheaper to fly overseas if we could have out of the community. So, so that meant that we, we spent um, most of our time in, in the community. Um, and it was very much a 24-7 kind of job. Everyone, a small community, large for Arnhem Land, I must say, small by, um, by metropolitan standards but uh, it large for, for an Indigenous community in the top end. The population when I was there was about 2,000. Um, it was known as the New York of Arnhem Land uh, because of its very uh, diverse Indigenous cultures. So the art centre itself was servicing nine language groups. Um, so that included the Rembaranga uh, people who we'd already been working with, but then a whole host of um, new language groups who we had were meeting for the first time in Manangrida. And that, of course, meant um, the Guningu speakers as well. And John Marmanjul is, of course, part of the Guningu clan. So another question people often have is, you know, with the languages, so how similar are they? Aren't they just dialects, you know, one of, you know, isn't it like Italian and French or something like that? And it's true some of the languages are similar, but actually they're, they're quite different. Um, the, the majority of them are, are quite different, um, as you know, Polish is to French, for example. So different grammars, different language structures. Uh, there has been a bit of work done on the languages, and when I say that, I mean in terms of um, documenting them, developing orthographies, so alphabets, so that they can be written down. Um, one of the things that um, has happened uh, through that uh, cultural research office that I mentioned, because it has typically in the past employed linguists, um, as well as having this terrific documentation for the artworks um, that is uh, you know, deep and rich because the, the people collecting that have been able to speak in local language. Um, 
the other, the other fantastic thing uh, about that research office is that it has produced a number of dictionaries that are now, you know, are available um, f to the community and then, you know, broader, broader researchers and others who are interested in that. So the, um, the Art Centre played a very, very important role and has continued to play an important role, not just, of course, as a, um, a place to kind of buy and sell the art, but also as a place of um, cultural and linguistic maintenance, um, also a place of social gathering, um, a very, you know, a very sort of happy place to be working. Uh, you know, these communities can be very intense um, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, as I said, lots of different language groups living together, uh, tension sometimes, um, you know, different, different pressures um, that we don't experience necessarily uh, in, in a big urban uh, centre like Adelaide. So I mentioned it was a 24-7 kind of job. Uh, people knew where I lived, there was no getting away. Um, lots of knocks on doors at, late at night, wanting to borrow the truck, wanting some money, wanting to sell a painting at midnight urgently, you know, <laughs> all sorts of things. Um, so that made it a very, very colourful um, and uh, actually exhilarating experience. So John um, was really one of many, many artists. He was about, uh, I think there were about 200 on the books when we were there. And of course, um, that's not just 200 superstars. That ranges really from emerging artists, artists who are you know, very young making their first pictures uh, to um, people who were very, very well established. John, of course, was the superstar at the time, although when I arrived, he... he, um, he well, you've, prob you've probably picked up, if you've read the catalogue and things, he's quite, he was quite competitive um, with his painting. And the other person who was very, very well known, who sadly passed away now, Johnny Bullenbullen, um, who was a painter from the other side of the river, and you may have seen some of Bullenbullen's works, a Barada speaker. And just shortly after I had arrived, John Bullenbullen and Marwan Jewell had had a very, very successful show at Annandale Galleries in Sydney. So this was um, the show, I think, was 1997, and I'd arrived in 1998. And uh, one of the first things that John wanted to make very, very clear to me was that he was number one. So, <laughs> so he would say things like, so what about Bullen Bullen? What do you think? Like the <laughs> different culture, different painting. It's, you know, trying to be very, very diplomatic. So, it, you know, one of the jobs at being an arts advisor in those communities or an arts centre manager, as they're now known, is... is uh, you know, being able to uh, negotiate those kinds of conversations and particularly around, you know, the value of works because, um, you know, as, as the kind of the, um, the, the platform, if you like, for selling works into the wider world, the art centre is very um, focused on, you know, the monetary or the financial, you know, value that gets placed on, on the work. Um, but, of course, in an Indigenous community, um, there are lots of different measures, well, in our communities as well, but particularly in Indigenous communities, the cultural value is very, very important, and that being the, um, the type of story that is embedded in the work. So while, for example, a work to 
uh, a Western eye might not be so aesthetically um, pleasing, um, although that, of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, um, it, it could be the case that something that I felt would, would struggle to sell on the market would in fact contain extremely important cultural references and elements. And so that, I think, was one of the biggest challenges as an arts advisor at that time, being able to negotiate um, that kind of question of value and why something by John Marwinjul might have a price tag of $10,000, for example, just pulling something out of the air, while something by someone else who was of the same age as Marwinjul but not as the same stature in the kind of fine arts world, why the other painting might have $1,000 on it. It was a very tricky conversation to have, um, but, you know, it was worked through. And I think that uh, people um, really began to understand once they started looking at Marmajul's work and understanding, um, uh, you know, what it was that people were drawing from that, what Western audiences were beginning to see in the works, that Marmajul then became very influential um, in his, amongst his own people. But I think also more broadly than that as well. And when I say that, I mean particularly with the transition that you see from the very figurative work. So... Uh, I know that you will have all seen the exhibition and you will have all read the catalogue, <laughs> hopefully, or at least had a good look at it. But just um, Marwanjul is uh, so revered, if you like, for the way in which he has transformed um, that uh, very, very long practice of uh, painting, firstly, on the rock shelters, the figurative forms that were on the rock shelters, um, you can see in the work here on the right, the Ngaliod, um, that's quite an early painting of his um, that speaks to that um, figurative style that he, you know, focused on in the first phase of his painting. So when I said the first phase, sort of from the late 1970s to the um, late 80s, mid-80s. And then um, from the mid-80s really to the mid-1990s, scaling up, He's, he had been travelling overseas kind of in that period. He'd seen major works in galleries internationally and he had realised that for him to have a place kind of on the international stage, he would need to scale up his works. So that happened um, during uh, the late 80s to the mid-90s. And the other thing that he focused on then, so they're still very figurative, these works. Um, he he uh, focused particularly on explorations of Ngaliod, so the rainbow serpent. You can see that recurring through the exhibition. But Ngaliod is a um, very, very powerful spirit, creator spirit for the country. When you fly in over Manangarita, there are a number of river systems, the Liverpool River being one of the biggest ones. And as it's, you know, it snakes through the landscape, and that is the manifestation of Ngaliod. And Ngaliod, well, in this, in this instance, has devoured, um, I'm not sure if that's Mimi spirits or, or the um, human forms, but it, it can be very fierce. Um, Ngaliod can also transform, uh, can change shape, can grow horns, um, can turn into something else altogether. 
So these Ngaliod works were very typical of his um, second phase, a number of them around here. But already you can start to see in the works the um, figurative elements begin to fall away and we start to see these large bands of the cross-hatching or the radak, as it's called in Guningu, uh, that then dominate his later works. His later works, it's very well set up here that we've got three works in a row I can talk to. So the, this is really typical then of his later period where you see the figuration has disappeared altogether. It's just focusing in on the radak uh, and the kind of movements, the way the rock has been engineered to give that shimmer effect. That is what he is concerned with by that third phase of painting. Um, I think, uh, well, these paintings or these abstract works all refer to the Madayin ceremony, which is a, um, a ceremony that was until quite recently practiced during the period that I was in Maningrita. There was at least one Madayin ceremony that I recall. And those ceremonies are practiced right across Arnhem Land and they are ceremonies to honor the spirit world. And these, these works are a reference to, to that ceremony. So they're not a literal reference, but they are a um, reference, a, an oblique reference to that. And when you read about Mao and Jules' work, you often hear about the, or read about the outside story and the inside story. So what we can see, that, that aesthetic, the beauty of the work, the shimmer of the work, um, it's like a veil, if you like, towards the inner meaning that we would only know if we had been um, part of the um, part of the clan group and uh, inducted, initiated into that clan. So when I mentioned before um, Mama Jules' influence, if you like, and people being very, um, you know, very cognizant and aware that he was on a trajectory of, you know, just onwards and upwards. Uh, in huge demand, traveling a lot. Um, we've, you know, it, it became clear that uh, he, firstly his kin and his, you know, close family members, who many of whom were also artists, also adopted this kind of abstracted style. So, you know, this is one of the um, significant things about Mawanjul was the way in which he has really... Um, influenced a whole new generation of painters. So th from, you know, this very, very um, typical stylistic iconographic type of painting that has its roots very much in the rock art from the region and its evolution into the purely abstracted form. So if you look at works now by his contemporaries, many of whom have sadly passed away, you will find that their latter works have also adopted this kind of abstracted approach. I just want to jump in and say a very special thank you to our phenomenal colleague and friend Fiona Salmon. Fiona has been with us on this journey of the exhibition development. Of course, Fiona was on the journey well before this exhibition began and it is an absolute privilege and an honour to be able to bring that knowledge into the room. So thank you. Brilliant.